Hello, and welcome to episode 41 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey, and this week we are busting myths about building a company with nice healthcare's Thompson, Adder and Comey. Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Healthcare is not nice. So, Thompson, Adder and Comey co-founded Nice Healthcare to set out to change that. NICE is a direct primary care practice in the USA that delivers care in the comfort of the patient's home. In this talk, Thompson will share how he has come to understand why so many of the things people know to be true about growing a successful business are simply not true. His experiences as a serial entrepreneur have taught him to question the orthodoxy and why deciding on the right course is down to you. He will leave you with an understanding of how you can ask the right questions through some very honest and personal experiences. Happy listening. All right. You can, you can ask Mark. I get asked to speak uh, quite often, and I actually don't like to do it. I mean, my ideal environment is at home, alone, in the dark, not talking to anybody, just working on my company or hanging out with my wife and kids. And so, I mean, when Mark asked me, I was, and when anybody asked me, I'm always looking for reasons not to do it. You know, I was like, Mark, I don't know if I'll fit in, like, business is software, like, you know, am I really going to have anything to provide a value to the audience? And he assured me that I would. And what we landed on was me taking you through my story as an entrepreneur, but in a slightly different way than I've ever told it before. And the thing that is unique about my story is that I was blessed, now looking back in hindsight, uh, with the opportunity to start the same company twice uh, within a very short uh, time period, so less than a year you know, between the ending of the first version and the starting of the second version. And almost all the variables were the same. The same team, the same founders, uh, the same customers in many instances, and because it's the healthcare industry, things don't change very quickly in healthcare. So not much changed over the course of a year. And it really makes me think of Jean-Luc Picard. I'm, I'm personally really excited by the return of Captain Picard. I, is anyone else here excited? I mean, <laughs> I mean I, I'm very excited. And it's not going to be exactly like next generation, you know, but there's going to be hints. There's going to be illusions. There's going to be connections. And there's going to be things to learn. And I encourage everybody to re-watch Next Generation uh, before uh, the next season starts up. But first off, let's talk about starting companies. When I was first thinking of starting my first company, I was getting all this advice. Like, no, quit your job and do it full time. Don't quit your job. Do it part time. Work overnight. You got to iterate and test, lean startup, lean startup, lean startup, and all the things, all the frameworks, all the advice, and rarely did anything agree with one another. So I had to come up with my own framework for what I was going to do. And what I did with the first version, I said, okay, what, what do I think sales is going to be like, and what do I think the operations of the company are going to be like? And so my company is basically a clinic that comes to your house, a medical clinic that comes to your house. So heavy on the technology, but pretty heavy on the people side and the service side as well. So we had to blend both. 
And I, and I really, at that time, wanted to try and start without quitting what I was doing. Because I recognized the risks that I would be placing on my family. I'm married, and at the time, only had one child. And so I did all this analysis, and I just couldn't figure out how to do it. Because I realized that the sales cycle was going to be incredibly long. It's healthcare. The sales cycle is about a year long. There's, there's no way around it. It doesn't matter if you're, what you're selling is $5 a year in contract value or $5 million a year in contract value. It all goes the same in healthcare. The second thing was it was clearly not a pure SaaS model. So there was an actual last mile service component to the business. But, so I realized that I couldn't take advice from people in that quadrant. So I divided all my advice into different quadrants. This quadrant didn't apply to me. So I looked at another quadrant. And there was people saying, yeah, you gotta, you know, you gotta work on the sales at night, you know, you gotta automate things, but the operations, you gotta jump in and dig in right away. And I realized again, this did not apply to my business. And there's a third quadrant, you can probably see where I'm going here, where it's the opposite, where you quit your job because you have to sell. Like you jump in and you're out on the road and you're selling, 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 building that pipeline, knowing that the sales cycle is incredibly long, but the operations are pretty automated and there's not a lot of people involved. Maybe there's developers that you're contracting or there's someone on your founding team. I was squarely, I was squarely in this fourth quadrant. So right away, big risk, like incredibly risky venture from a personal standpoint when trying to start something like this because you need multiple people to quit their jobs. You can't get it going on the side. You can't get it going overnight. You can't get it going on weekends. You have to jump in when there's zero revenue and start spending money. Is there anyone here who started a company that kind of fits that mold, where you had to start spending thousands of dollars, tens, twenties, thirties, before you started? We got one, we got two, we got a couple, we got three. All right, so you, got, so you probably can relate and understand what I'm talking about. Not that it's a harder type of business, it's just that the risk curve is slightly different. A lot of the risk is front-loaded on your business. So I quit my job. I was consulting, I was making plenty of money, you know, charging uh, insurance companies as a contract health economist. That was my background and training. And I stopped doing it. Like the hourly rage, everything just dried up and I jumped headlong into this company that I believed would work. I was passionate about it, I knew it had to succeed, and I knew that because the solution was so valuable and so on point, in terms of who it was going to serve, that it wouldn't take long. That maybe I would short circuit the sales cycle. That was actually what I was thinking back in 2012. I would short, I would short circuit it. I remember one of my founder friends, also in the healthcare tech space, he said, Thompson, nobody ever shorts the sales cycle in healthcare, and you're not going to do it either. And I laughed, ha 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 ha, like, I'm going to short that thing. I'm going to get it down to three to six months. I'm going to make this thing work, and I'm not going to have to go into too much debt. I'm not going to have to raise money. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Well, that's not what happened. So as you can see here, in the first company, these are the f about the first year, just shy of a year. And right out of the gate, our monthly spend was 25K. Like no customers, no anything. There, there's n literally no way to get the company started without spending money. Because we have an app, we have providers, we were drawing blood, we have centrifuges, People are coming to your house. Uh, we don't know when people get sick, so you have to have the capacity there to serve them, and you have to have this great experience. 
all my founder friends were like, why are you hiring all these people? Why are you building all this stuff? Why are you doing this? Lean startup, lean startup, iterate, iterate, test, test, test. Like, there is no test here. Like, there's no test, there's no experiment. You just, you either have to do it and hope it works, or you don't. So as you can see, it, it didn't feel good. I was using my own personal money. I didn't borrow any money at this stage. There were two individuals that I knew on a couple of different boards, and they each put in about $15,000 to help kickstart the process. But still, as you can see here, almost a year of no revenue. We were direct to consumer in the, in the beginning of the business, and the way we started was we sold lifetime memberships to consumers. We said, hey, join this crazy new way to get medical care, pay this one fee, and you'll have access to medical care for the rest of your life. And, and I thought, surely, we could sell 1,000 in a, in a month. Because healthcare in this country is ridiculously expensive. Access to care is dismal, depending on the market that you're in. It, it just didn't occur to me at all why someone would say no to this. Hence, the beautiful chart that you see here uh, on the screen. So we, we started to get a little bit of traction. Just a tiny bit. But as you can see, I mean, it, it, it doesn't really instill confidence, if you, if you get what I mean. And I, and I have to ask, looking back in hindsight, I can laugh you know, at all this, but it felt terrible, absolutely terrible. I mean, but at, in any one of those months, even, maybe even past the fourth month, if I would have quit the company, just shut it down, I don't think anybody would have laughed. I don't think anybody would have said I made the wrong decision. I don't think they would think I was being not taking big enough risk or stepping out, they would have looked at it as a very logical thing. You've, you're spending $25,000 a month and you're not generating any revenue. You're not even getting a smidgen of feedback or validation that this business actually makes any sense whatsoever. But yet I continued to plow through. And I remember one of the lowest points for me. So now I'm piling on debt, right? I'm at a couple hundred thousand dollars in personal debt. And the way I was funding this is that consulting job, the consulting I was doing on the side, remember I told you about that? At one of my customers, I was able to bring in some of my own people. And so I was using the profits from that to fund this business on top of dumping all savings, 401k, everything into the business. And there was one point in this journey up to this point here in the first company where didn't have any money. Like, literally had no money. I mean, the credit cards were maxed out. Banking account was negative. You know how Wells Fargo does it. And we needed to go to Target and buy diapers for my firstborn son, who was still in diapers at the time. And I knew that we didn't have money to buy diapers. Like, I knew it. And fortunately, some money came in, and I was able to take some of that and buy diapers the next day. It was like one of those miracle situations when it comes to startups. Like that's where I was at at this point, but yet continued to plow on. And, and so you see, when you see the yellow mark in January, that's when we switched from direct to consumer to direct to business. I had a few interactions here and there. And one thing led to another, and I got turned on to this idea of selling to businesses instead of selling to consumers. And so we started to get a little bit more traction, but still not enough. And at the end of this chart right here, I'm almost a half a million dollars in personal debt. Like credit cards, like everything. Like it's on me. I borrowed money from my little brother, even. You know, my parents, there's, I tapped everything out. 
but I believed in the idea. But all the startup wisdom at the time was telling me to quit, was telling me to stop, was telling me that I jumped in too early, you know, you didn't validate, you didn't test, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. And not that I don't believe about testing and validation and all that stuff. I just believe sometimes you can't do it. Sometimes it doesn't work. Fortunately, through some effort, we were able to raise a million dollar seed round for this first company. So I was able to burn down some of that debt, was able to hire a few more people, increase the service level, and keep on plowing forward. And that million dollar seed round was made up of uh, corporate ventures. So no VCs per se in that model. They're all corporate, but they're all big industry, multi-billion dollar corporations. So I was looking at that as validation. Ah, here's some market validation from the market telling me that you are on the right track and you were just off to a rough start, you know, you had to figure things out, and you didn't, get, you didn't raise $10 million in an idea and a napkin. So in 2016, things really started to pick up. It became very clear that things were working. Our monthly burn increased slightly, and things were starting to look pretty good. Like, they're starting to make sense. If you were to start the chart at February or January 2015, it's, it would make most people feel good. That's how most people present themselves on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and TechCrunch, all that kind of stuff. They start it right there. You know, but it actually starts back in October 2013. And that's not even to talk about the people that quit and never even made it. And then we raised $7 million uh, in a Series A, and we thought we were off to the races. Unfortunately for me, what happened is four months after that Series A, the Series A investors led an effort to kick me out of the company. Four months, literally, I mean, people were like, are you sure it was four months? Like, is your memory working? Like, no, no, it, it was four months. Like, like, I don't, yeah, you don't forget, you know, millions of dollars, your checking account, and then four months later, you're gone. And I had another marker, too, to help me remember. My second son was born uh, in that period, uh, in that month, where they really kind of put on the effort to kick me out of the company. So I'll never forget. You know, millions of dollars, second son born, things are finally working after all that sweat, all that work, all that risk, and now I'm gone, poof, like forever from the company. And then four months after they kicked me out of the company, they shut down the company. And not for lack of it working, I mean, it was working. I mean, the contracts were rolling in, the team was in place, it was gelling, great culture, all the stuff you read on Twitter. I could have been on any of those Twitter posts that you were reading at this point in the company. And, but yet, four months after they kicked me out, they shut down the company. And I can smile and laugh and talk to you about it on stage right now, but that was an incredibly hard point in my life as a founder. Because it wasn't my first company either. You know, so it was my third attempt at doing a company, and finally I got something to work. And I thought I was following all the rules and doing all the things right, except for the whole quitting your job and not having money and you know, going into crazy debt. Except for that part, I thought I was doing everything right, and then it got snatched, taken away from me. And I really hope it never happens to anyone in this room, like ever. Like I want you all to be incredibly successful on your own terms, and not have to take the road that I had to travel to get there, because it really sucks. So this is a chart of the second company. So 
what happened is after they shut down the company, so now this is what, eight, nine months after they put in money, uh, all the customers came to me as a civilian. I called myself as a civilian because I was kind of outside the startup bubble. I was doing my own thing. I became a stay-at-home dad. And my wife started a company, which is doing great, by the way. And so my life just completely switched, you know, being a stay-at-home dad. And I started a little company on the side, pure tech, pure SaaS, in that lower left quadrant, you know, that I showed you earlier. And, but all the customers and distributors came to me after the company shut down. They were like, you had something really incredible. It was solving a real problem. Our employees loved it. Would you please restart the company? And I said no. I turned them down. I said no. I was like, that was way too stressful. I'm not going through that again. Like, you guys say you're going to help me out, but how can I believe that? I thought these VCs would help me out, and look what they did, so on and so forth, and I said no. But what happened is I stayed in pretty close contact with many of the employees at the first company, and two in particular, Genevieve and Allison, we would talk often, and uh, we talked about what would it be like to restart the company? Like, just kind of daydreaming. We, none of us ever intended to do it. Like, what would it be like? Like, what would we change at the new company if we could restart from scratch and not only from scratch, but with customers out of the gate, and not this long trial of sorrow that we had in the first version. And we realized that we really wouldn't change anything. Like, there wasn't that much we would change, because we had, we had actually figured it out at the time that I was jettisoned from the company. And the more we talked about it, the more we realized that, you know what, maybe we're being too scared. We're being presented with an opportunity to learn and to apply what we have learned to basically the same company that's still fresh in our minds. So we restarted that company in October 2017, but we had to do the same thing. Like, we, there was no way to start the company without spending thousands of dollars because it was exactly the same. But this time we started with some revenue with those early customers. And some of those early customers from the previous company joined in that first six month period so we could get our MRR up quickly. And then we raised $350,000 from Indie.VC. And if you're looking for funding and you're looking for something different, highly recommend Bryce Roberts and Indie.VC. It's an incredible experience, it's an incredible group. And they believed in this. And we raised this money. I mean, I never met him in person. We just spoke on the phone a couple times, and we closed the deal. It was quite amazing. So with this new company now, what I'm doing is I'm constantly kind of in, these two, in, this, in two worlds, where I'm thinking about, OK, what did I do the last time? And should I do it again? Or should I do something different? And if I, should do, if I do something different, what should be different? Because rarely do you have the opportunity to do that in life, to, to basically try things again. And yet here I am getting to try it again. So the first thing was pricing. I remember when I first started the company as a newbie entrepreneur, I thought that when you're first starting out and you're new, you got to discount things, you got to give coupons, you got to do trials, you got to do pilots, you got to do all this stuff because you're new, nobody knows you, you can't compare yourself to the incumbents who are typically large and established, and at least in healthcare are 100 years old in the communities that they operate in. So you gotta, you gotta start with low prices. So basically I was assuming that price sensitivity was incredibly high, being a new entrant into the marketplace. And so in that first company, our price point was incredibly low. 
And what started happening, despite the traction picking up, people started questioning the price. Like, well, how can you stay in business if the price is so low? Like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, we're, and again, this is healthcare. Like, everybody, does anyone here think healthcare is affordable? No. So, and my logic was healthcare is so insanely expensive. If I come at you with an incredibly low price, you're gonna be like, finally, reprieve from this gargantuan industry that's trying to oppress me, that's siphoning money from my company. But that's not what happened. People were like, well, I'm paying too much for healthcare. How come I'm not going to pay too much with you? I'm not interested. I mean, literally, like, people thought it just didn't cost enough. So this time with the company, when we're setting our pricing, of course, we looked at our gross margins, and we looked at our variable costs and the fixed costs and all that kind of stuff. And then we just like doubled it. Like, no science, sorry all you pricing people out there. <laughs> like, we, we, just, we just figured out a good price that we all felt good with, and I will give credit to one of my co-founders, Allison, because she's always like, let's just double it. Like, let's just double it. And so we just doubled it, like, this time around. And, and it worked. Like, the pr price sensitivity disappeared. Price is not part of the conversation or the question. But if I want to get even more nuanced about it, what I figured out from the first company to the second company is that those early adopters are not price sensitive. They just aren't. And so I started using price sensitivity as a market segmentation variable. So if someone or company starts talking about price, I was like, okay, well, that's okay, fine. We'll, we'll come back in a year or two. Like, I don't even waste my time anymore, if that's your thing. Because I know you're not an early adopter then. You, you couldn't possibly understand it. And so I focus all my time on customers, or at least I should say I focus my distributor's time on customers that are not price sensitive because I know right now with this new company, although it's the second time, we need to stay in that realm of the early adopters. And whether you, you subscribe to these particular segments or not, you know, I'm talking about the left side of the chart. So that's one of the first things that I've changed at this new company, and it's working well without any fancy pricing theory. But what I really want to talk to you about are some of the personal changes I made for myself at this company. Now, with the first company, I typically worked in, I would call it negative return mode. Like I'm reading all the startup porn, I'm talking to all my founder friends, everybody's working these crazy hours, Elon Musk is like, you know, not sleeping, not eating, you know, all these things. I'm like, well, I can't do what Elon is doing, but I need to be like a, a notch below that. Because it appears as if everybody is doing this. And I can tell you that I don't think it worked. But I only know that in hindsight. I, I mean, I'm not some genius. I didn't have like the self-awareness to know that I was overworking myself. Maybe you do. I don't know. But I did not. I only know this in hindsight because I'm working on the same company with the same people, same co-founders, same product, same everything, and I've modified the way I worked. But before I got there, I'll tell you this. I felt like a slacker when I was in that middle section as a founder CEO. I just felt like a dirtbag because everybody is hustling out there. They're not sleeping and they're somehow running marathons, you know, and they're doing all this stuff, you know. And I mean, they, they tell me that their marriage is the most wonderful thing and they have this great thing going on with their kids, 
you know, and they're doing all this. So I felt terrible, but I was in that middle section. I was like, I'm not working hard enough. I'm not going to win. Now I have, especially when I got the VC money, for sure when I got the VC, because now, you know, you have all those zeros in your bank account, your team has doubled, your revenue is growing, and you feel this need to always be doing something. And Slack doesn't help at all. You know, we still use Slack. But it, it, I mean, it doesn't help because you got the little green light on there, you know, and you don't want to put the Z's because, you know, you're a slacker. You know, someone calls you or emails you at 12 p.m. or 12 a.m., there's no differentiating between the two as a founder. And with this new company, what I've realized is all that doesn't matter for me. Maybe you have to work that hard. I'm not telling you you don't have to work that hard. I'm not telling you that you should work that hard. I'm just saying for me, with the same company, same people, same customers, same everything, I'm getting better results in the second section, in the third section, by being what I'll call normal. You know, just like, just being normal. And what I started realizing between the two companies is when you do a bunch of work, the probability that all the things you're doing are the right things to be doing at the right time decreases with the number of things you're doing. You follow me? Like, like it just does. Like, if you do more stuff, more stuff is going to be wrong. It's not just about diminishing returns with every incremental input you put in. You're probably doing more wrong stuff. But here's another fascinating thing. Tell me if this happens to you. The more emails you respond to, the more emails you get, <laughs> right? Is there such a thing as inbox zero? I think there is. It just depends on the interval of time that you're measuring. So the more work you do, the more work you create, and the greater proportion of that work you create is actually the wrong work to be working on at that time. That's what I've noticed, in, it just crystal clear to me, going from the first company to the second company. And I would encourage you to look at what you're working on. And sometimes just don't do anything. Because you'll, you, you'll be able to create success by not creating work. Because it's probably the wrong work. And then if you're an executive or the founder or the CEO, and you have all this positional power that you're not even aware of, all this wrong work you're doing and creating is just creating more wrong work for other people and compounding. And I saw that in my first company. And now I'm hypersensitive to it at this company. I rarely assign tasks to people, rarely. I'll sit on it and think about it. Does this person really need to be doing this? Because clearly they have work to do because we're bootstrapped. So I mean, with the indie money, we are bootstrapped. I think one of the benefits of being bootstrapped is you have less likelihood of people not actually being needed. Like every person is needed and they have work. So please, for your own sanity, just, just take a look and see what you're doing and see if it's the right stuff at the right time. Now, lastly, I heard, it was Randy Zuckerberg, I heard her say this a long time ago when I was sitting in front of some access databases charging my client way too much to run queries that they thought were super complicated. And I was just listening to a bunch of podcasts. And she said, you know, you can divide life up into these five things, family, friends, exercise, sleep, and work. And for me, I kind of say friends is kind of where your hobbies and religious activities are um, as well, if you have those. And she said that if you're 
uh, an aggressive founder that really wants to change the world, which I did with my first company, that you can only have three of these. You can only be successful at three. Saw my friend here shaking his head, rolling his eyes. I didn't know at the time, though. I, I was buying it. And I've said this to other people. And I've slowly been coming to this realization that I don't know if it's 100% correct. But at least in the first company, I just crossed off friends and crossed off sleep. Because they were the easiest ones. Because I like being by myself. Like, I don't need, I don't, I don't need human error. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, that one was easy. You know, and I have, I have great friends that understand my introvertness. And even, I'm, I'll, I'll just share a little something here. Like, I have a, my oldest son, he's eight years old now, and he's very extroverted. Like, I mean, and he can tell. Like, he'll look at my face, and he can tell what he's doing to me with his extrovertedness. <laughs> and he, he, he'll literally say to me, I'm going to go talk to mom right now. You know, because, and, and I, mean, it's, I mean, it's totally cool. Like, we have a great relationship, but I can tell that he gets energy from people, and I just kind of start shriveling up, you know, after a certain point. So our best times are in the morning when I'm fresh, you know, and I haven't had all this human interaction to like, weigh me down. And so I cut the friends out, you know, with that first company. Like, just, just cut them out. And they were all totally cool, because they're all like, oh, Thompson, he's this founder, he's, he's working with negative returns, you know, and he's, you know, he's, he's awesome. You know, they, they totally understood, I, and I love my friends for that. And then I cut sleep out. And for me, sleep was easy to cut out because I don't believe this whole eight-hour nonsense. Like, some people need 10 hours. I know some people like that. Some people need four hours. You know, some people need something in between. You know, I don't need eight hours of sleep. So it was really easy for me to operate even lower than what is industry standard in terms of the number of hours of sleep. And I'll tell you this. I, was, I got sick a lot. And as a founder, like, getting sick is one of the worst things, especially if you're on the sales side. You know, um, it, it, just, it just shuts you down. I'm, talking like, I'm, not, I'm talking really sick, not just like a little sniffle, you know, because you're so congested, you're, you're worn out, you know, you just can't, you can't go interact with people. So I had lots of downtime, and um, my co-founder at the first company, we meet for lunch about every three to six months, and whenever he sees me, he was like, are you sick? Like, he just asks, like, it's just this gut reaction because he knows how sick I was during this time because I wasn't sleeping enough. I wasn't getting enough sleep for myself. But the things I did religiously keep in place during the first company, first was family. I'm 100% dedicated to my family. Uh, my wife is my best friend. Uh, we just celebrated our 15-year anniversary. And I would want nothing more than to hang out with her. And even while I was working in this negative or diminishing returns uh, area in the first startup, what, what I really wanted deep down inside as a founder was just to hang out with my wife. But I didn't really talk about it because it wasn't like the founder thing to talk about, right? You're supposed to want to change the world. Change, and I was trying to change healthcare, change the industry, make a dent in the universe. But nobody ever thinks about just hanging out with your best friend as a, putting a dent in the universe. But I knew that's what I wanted. So I kept that safe. I kept it sacred. Same thing for my two sons during, that first, during the first company. Exercise, I knew I couldn't let go of that. I knew I needed to maintain a certain level of physical health. And I opted for exercise over sleep as something to do. 
And I would encourage, I mean, everybody here as a founder to get up and do some exercise. It's so important, both physically and mentally. And then, of course, work. That was the easy one, right? You know, I, I, I remember at one point, our CFO at the first company, him and his direct report were working with me on something remotely. And it was late at night, and then the next day, they woke up to a bunch of emails and a bunch of analysis that I did, and they're like, wait a minute. They're like, Thompson, did you like, go to bed early and then get up, or did you stay up and, you know, and not go to bed at all? Like, they couldn't tell. And that was like a regular thing for me, because I felt the need to do it, and I felt like I was seeing the results from doing it. But now with the second company, I, I haven't quite figured it out. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> You know, I, I'm trying. I'll be honest with you all here. I'm trying very hard. The family thing is, it's like just in me, like my family comes first. Uh, exercise, I do that, like every day. I got to do it every day. I'm sleeping more, and I can tell the difference. I can feel the difference mentally, emotionally, physically, my ability to make decisions. And if I ever get into a period of time, like a couple days or a week, where I'm not getting enough sleep, I'll tell my co-founders. I'm like, look, I'm not getting enough, I haven't gotten enough sleep the last couple days, and I'm actually not going to make any major decisions, or any decisions. You know, let's hold off on that, or I'll say, you know, you got to double check my work. You got to triple check my work, even. Or if I start feeling like I'm getting sick, I'll just lay low. Whereas before, I would plow through the sickness. I pretend it wasn't there. So I am sleeping more, I'm exercising the same, and the work thing I described in the last slide is something that I've really learned to temper and find that place of optimal productivity, where I'm not creating unnecessary work for others, where I'm not doing the wrong thing for myself or the company, and where I'm in this place where every additional input is getting me more output and not pushing beyond that at all. So, I'm glad that I was right before lunch, because my talk was pretty short, and I don't want to keep people from food uh, <laughs> and enjoyment. So I'll stop here and see if there's any questions or comments or complaints. Thank you. Um, so I've got a question. What's enough sleep for you? Enough sleep for me is six hours. And so here, without any children to wake me up, I slept exactly six hours and woke up feeling great. And if you do six hours day after day after day after day, that doesn't... Perfect. But if you've got less than that, you start to feel it. And as my wife would say, even five minutes less. <laughs> yeah. So as I'm like right there on the edge. <laughs> cool, right. So this is a good time for me to introduce you to the way that we do questions at BOSS. Um, I don't like that thing where we kind of go around and someone asks a question and then we find someone else and someone has to run up and do a microphone and blah, blah, blah. So anyone with a question puts their hand up. We've got two microphones in the room. Um, and I will get a microphone to you so that when one question finishes and you've done an answer, we've got the next one straight away. So we're going to start over here with Glenn. Thanks, Thompson. Um, question. With the first business, you did some friends and family in terms of raising money. Were you able to pay them back? No. So one of my goals 
is to pay them back. Yes. Um, what went wrong with the VCs uh, after the first company when you raised seven million? How come after four months they went completely in a different direction and then shut down the business? Be very curious to find out more. Yeah, and so am I. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It was it was a very awkward, unexplainable uh, event. Is that the full? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's. I mean, there's. Come on, man. Give us something. Oh uh, no, I, I would. No, I, I honestly would. I mean, we. I mean, the contracts are being signed. You know, customers were happy. There was no foul play. I didn't steal money. I didn't. You know, abuse anybody, you know, I didn't do anything criminal, you know, so it, it, I get that question a lot, and I wish I had more. I wish it was, there was some juicy story, you know, and, uh, or some argument on strategy or something like that, but no, nothing. Yeah, so, that is true. So after I left, you know, and, um, all the prospects walked away, and current clients became skeptical. Uh, employees started quitting or just stopped working. <laughs> uh, so I mean, <laughs> you know, either way, it's hard to run a company uh, like that. And they brought in their own management team and kind of shoved down the management team I had in place. And I mean, not, I, I value experience. I value years. I respect my elders. Uh, but they literally brought multiple people out of retirement to run a company where the average age was 29. You know, and so it was just, things just started going downhill pretty fast. Okay. Uh, so Glenn over here. Sorry, not Glenn, Patrick. Thompson, thank you for a great talk. Um, I was wondering, like, especially since your two businesses were kind of, to your point, attacking the same industry, uh, you had the benefit of experience the second time around. I was wondering what, beyond the organization of you, which is where you landed your talk, how do you organize your business in the second, the second time around that was different from the first time that you wish you'd applied the first time around? Mm. Okay, so I'll, I'll say, it wasn't that I didn't want to do this the first time, is that I, I couldn't, or I was unsuccessful. And the second time, I started with two co-founders, who I hired at the first company. So, I mean, a lot, of, it was de-risked. We've talked about risk today. So de-risked, you know, hooking up with two co-founders. And the first time that, remember that chart where just, it was not, no money coming in, a lot of money going out. Like for the majority of that period of time, I was by myself. I was a sole founder, bearing the full weight of the company, every single decision. And I didn't want that to be the, I mean, I, I was actively looking for a co-founder the whole time. And I, didn't, I wasn't able to add a co-founder until that uh, seed round, that million dollar seed round. And that co-founder who I referenced before, we're still friends, we still talk, we're meeting up you know, next week. And uh, we were so tight and so in sync from a business standpoint that the VCs kicked him out of the company too. Because they knew it would have been, that they couldn't get rid of one of us without you know, having to deal with the repercussions. Uh, so having those two co-founders, and then our roles are segregated. I mean, it is clean. I mean, it is so segregated, and everybody's working in their domain of expertise, and the company just works a lot, uh, works in a much less stressful way than it did before. Great.
Someone up there? Ah, yes. Uh, thank you for the talk. Uh, so these five areas that you have on the screen, family, friends, exercise, sleep, and work, um, how did you baseline with your co-founders around these five areas so that you all could have unified alignment in terms of the way in which you work um, and how you find balance? I think the first thing was by being honest with each other. And at least in my startup community, I call myself the lazy founder because I actually don't like to work and I don't want to work and I'm actually trying to minimize the amount of work I do. And having co-founders that adopt that mentality was the first step. Uh, and it's, it's interesting too because we're not all at the same life stage. One of my co-founders, we're at exactly the same life stage. Like same age within a month, same years of being married within a month. Uh, she has one more child than I do. Uh, both from the healthcare industry. So our kind of world view is very similar. But our other founder, our third founder, she is four years maybe out of college, three or four or three. So when I hired her, she was right out of college. So very different worldview, very different world goals, uh, uh, goals, but still the same kind of a attack on life. And so we all put family first. And then we all put our health second and we all put work last. But we still have ambitious goals. And the company is growing at venture speed, despite the fact that we arrange our work in that way. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah. Okay, any more questions? And I'll remind you, stick your hand up so we can get a mic to you up to the end, uh, to Asia. Thanks, Emma. Anyone else with a question, just keep your hand up, catch my eye, and I'll make sure you've got a mic. That way we keep it snappy. Thompson, thank you so much for your courage and vulnerability on the stage. The founder journey is not an easy one, so I just thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I'm so curious about uh, how your routines and maybe even approach to productivity has changed. Are there things that you're using, uh, mindset or approach that you're using in terms of what you're doing today versus what you did previously? Yeah, I would say one that's overarching what I'm doing is do just enough. So remember I was talking about working myself too hard and kind of drinking the Kool-Aid about working all the time? Well, I applied that to everything that I did. So even the way I worked out during the first company, like I would work out, I'm, I'm, into, I'm into weight training, I'm into running, and I would push myself so hard. So my weight training workout, say it was leg day. Like I could only do leg day once a week at the first company. I could do upper body once a week, I could do this once a week, because I would push myself so hard, I would need a week, a week to recover. But now the way I work out is I do just enough. I have my goals, and I don't have this macho man need you know, to push myself to the point where I can't do that last rep. And so now I work out every day, and I'm seeing better results physically. You know? And I think it's just better. I really think it was more about ego and pride. You know, running, you know, I, I, I do a five mile run, you know, and I'd push, push, push myself, you know, to get that average minutes, you know, below eight, below seven. Because I would read about this guy the other day who ran 100 miles at six minute mile. And I was like, well, I got, I'm a slacker, I gotta do that. <laughs> you know, so, you know, but now I just kinda like, I just kinda just stay, why do I wanna do that? Why do I wanna run my last mile this morning at six minutes. Isn't eight minutes enough? I'll actually burn fat calories versus sugar calories if I run slower, 
So, you know, maybe I should tone it down a little bit. And I kind of apply that to everything, you know, that I do now. Interesting. So I have a question about funding that you've got this time, because you went down the, a slightly different route for fundraising. Yeah, so this time around, we went, we were, a lot of people say, are you afraid of VCs now? Or would you ever take VC funding again? And I remember one very successful founder I know, he's like super rich, he's had multiple exits. And he was like, he called me up after I got kicked out. He's like, Thompson, I'm really pissed for you, I'm angry, but just don't write off VC. Like that's what he said to me on the phone, don't write them off. They're not all like that. And he's right. And so what I did is I invested more time into understanding the VC business model to understand what their needs are, especially depending on the segment that they play in, their stage, their approach. And I realized that for me and my persona that traditional VCs weren't gonna be a good fit. And I was following Bryce Roberts on Twitter, loved everything he was posting, I would like it, I would retweet it two times, you know, and I just couldn't get enough of what he was saying. And then one day I tweeted at him, like I hadn't talked to him at that point, I tweeted at him, and uh, the rest is history from there. And we've done two rounds with them, and everything's going as planned. Don't forget, you can get regular updates from Business of Software via the newsletter. Sign up for free at businessofsoftware.org updates. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.